0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 49. I'm going to read this morning from Isaiah 49. I'm going to be, begin reading in verse 14, and I'm going to read down through verse 23. Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 23. And this will provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage, which is over in Acts chapter 19. We'll be looking at the riot in Ephesus at the very end of Paul's time there. And to understand what is happening in that story, we're going to look first at Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Did not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me, your sons shall make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes, look around and see. All these gather together and come to you as I live, says the Lord. You shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does for your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children you will have after you have lost the others will say again in your ears, The place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. Then you will say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me? Since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro, and who has brought these up? There I was, left alone, but these, where were they? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. For they shall not be ashamed who wait For me. Amen. The prophet Isaiah sees through the power of the Holy Spirit the day of captivity coming, a day of exile and of shame, a day of devastation and desolation in which the church is but a shadow of what it used to be. People are dead, the city is destroyed, the temple is gone, every semblance of the favor and love of God evaporated into the air. And the Spirit moves in Isaiah to prophesy. And I will use that great tragedy to make you bigger and better and more beautiful than ever. He issues this call to the church about to advance into the great season of trial and adversity. He says in verse 18, lift up your eyes. Look around and see. My friends, I submit to you that this is a call to us that we need to hear this morning. We are so often preoccupied with the problems at the end of our noses, so often overwhelmed by the sorrows and sins that work within us, that we need the call of Scripture to say to us, lift up your eyes and look around. See what's really happening in the world. I am building my church. I am saving sinners. I am sanctifying saints. Indeed, he has stretched out his hand with an oath. The very tragedies that you fear most are your salvation. And the very sorrows through which he will carry you will prove to be your sanctification. My friends, do not be afraid. With this in mind, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We're going to read this morning from Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. This is the second half of the chapter, in which, as I mentioned, Paul is coming to the end of his time in Ephesus. He is likewise coming to the end of his third missionary journey. Having planted churches throughout Asia Minor and through Greece, he's now realizing it's time to carry on to a new mission, a new mission field. Acts chapter 19, verses Twenty-one through forty-one. Here again, the word of the Lord. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, "After I have been there, I must also see Rome." So he went into Macedonia. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, "'Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade.' Moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So, not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, when they heard this, they were fill, full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, "'Great is Diana of the Ephesians!' And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, "'Men of Ephesus, what man is there "'who does not know that the city of the Ephesians "'is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana "'and of the image which fell down from Zeus? "'Therefore, since these things cannot be denied,' You ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Permit one more verse. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Amen and amen. Some time ago, I recognized a particular speech pattern among many of you. I had been here for a few months, perhaps a few years. I actually don't remember exactly when it was. But you would come to me with stories to tell, jokes to share, concerns to express, prayer requests to make. And you would begin your speech with the same phrase. I know you're busy, but. Tim and Tom are laughing because we've had a conversation about this. I know you're busy, but. We began to think and we began to talk, Tim, Tom, and I. I began to pray and to begin to wonder, why is everyone in my congregation starting their conversations with me, saying, I know you're busy, but. I recognized very quickly a lot of it was my own problem. Every time you asked me how I was doing, I would say, I'm busy. It made sense that you would repeat back to me the report that I was constantly giving you. But then I also realized something more deeply rooted, something more significant in the heart to address and to deal with. I wanted to be busy. And I wanted you to know I was busy. And I realized very suddenly, this is something to repent of. We live in a busy city. We live in a busy world. We love being busy. And yet, my friends, too often the hurry and worry which are the hallmarks of our life are antithetical to the gospel truth before us in this text. That Jesus is in charge. That I, as a minister of the gospel and a pastor in this place, if I believe that Jesus is in charge, I need not fill my life or ministry with hurry or with worry. My friends, I submit to you that the good news for you this morning is that Jesus is in charge. And so you can live in peace. You can live without hurry and without worry. I want to think about this a little bit as we go through our story. Notice it begins with Paul demonstrating a life without hurry or worry. Paul, in verses 21 and 22, forms a plan. It is the plan to conclude his third missionary journey. He has planted churches throughout Asia Minor. He has planted churches throughout Macedonia and Greece. And he has decided it is time to seek a new mission field. And so he forms a plan of how to get from Ephesus to Rome. Rome being the center of the empire, but also, as he mentions in his letter to the Romans, a springboard to Western Europe, that is Spain, which is Paul's dream. Having been a church planter in Asia Minor and in Greece, he now looks to be a church planter in Spain, but he has to go through Rome, and he decides that he will instead go through Macedonia to Achaia and catch a ship to Jerusalem. In this way, Paul holds out to us a pattern for plan-making. First, notice in verse 21, he makes his plan in the Spirit. His purpose is fixed in the Spirit. Paul does not derive this plan simply by the strategic advantage of going to Rome to get to the Western world. Paul does not simply come up with this plan because it is of advantage to the congregations in Macedonia and Achaia to be strengthened by his return and his visit. These are valuable ideas to Paul, but ultimately his purpose rests in the movement of the Spirit. It's not clear in the text whether this Spirit is Paul's or the Holy Spirit. In the New King James Version there, they make the S capital, suggesting the Holy Spirit. But the Greek itself isn't clear. Instead, we should rest on the intersection of the Holy Spirit and Paul's spirit. That is what we call prayer. That is to say, Paul makes this plan in prayer. He begins with prayer. His ideas, his strategies, this plan is born in prayer. Secondly, in verse 22, it is executed with partners. Paul himself sends on ahead of him to Macedonia, Timothy, and Erastus. We have seen this in each of Paul's missionary journeys. Wherever Paul goes, his partners go with him. Wherever Paul ends up, his partners are summoned to join him. Paul's plan is born in prayer, but it is built up by partners. And then thirdly, but most importantly for our purposes this morning... It says at the end of verse 22, something rather unexpected. But he stayed in Asia. Paul, having come up with the plan, having laid out the road map, having decided the way to journey to Jerusalem, having decided the way to get to Rome, he can see the end in sight. The great vision is looming before him. And what's he do? He hangs the keys on the hook and he puts his feet up on the ottoman and grabs a cup of coffee. He hangs out. Paul is not in a hurry. Paul, having prayerfully conceived this plan, having employed his partners in this plan, now has peace and patience. My friends, I submit to you that our prayerlessness is the birth of our worry and our hurry. I submit to you the constant agitation in our souls. I have to solve this problem. I have to answer that question. I have to go. I have to be there. Is rooted in the fact that we so seldom pray for those things. That are eating away at us. But if we were to take them to Christ. And with prayer trust in his sovereignty. And believe that he's in charge of our plans that He's in charge of our ambitions and desires, my friends, I think we might find the Spirit granting us relief, granting us hope, granting us partners in our labor, granting us the ability to rest, to be at peace. Please, cultivate our plans with prayer. Let us birth them in prayer. Let us bathe them in prayer. Let us pull in partners to serve with us in this plan, to not work alone. Let us, my friends, see we are a congregation longing for a bigger deacon board, longing for a stronger session, longing to be useful in this city, to be evangelists in the streets of this great place, longing to be disciple makers, mentoring one another, Longing to live in peace and joy with one another. Longing to plant churches. We are a people filled with great ambition. And it is beautiful. But let it be ambition that is born in prayer. That is built up in partnership. And most of all, that is exercised in patience. Let us trust Jesus to be in charge. And to bring all his plans to fruition in due time. There are several reasons for this. The rest of our text, really the story of this riot, illustrates for us the significance of this application. Why must we possess a spirit-filled, prayer-drenched plan with which we have partners and patients because, my friends, first and foremost, our mission is nothing less than the transformation of the entire world. Because, my friends, we don't have a small project. We are not called by Christ to Cambridge to get a few more RPs in the pews. We are not called by Christ to this great city to plant a few more RP churches. No, Christ is in a bigger and better business. He is here to turn this kingdom into the kingdom Of Christ to make the new heavens and the new earth with our labors. Something this big and this beautiful requires tremendous prayer and patience and partnership. We see this in the speech that Demetrius gives. Demetrius is a silversmith in the city of Ephesus, he's a salesman, and he's done very well has a little shop down on the street in the marketplace just in the shadow of the great temple of Diana. The Greeks call her Artemis. And there Demetrius takes the work of the silversmiths and other craftsmen and he sets them out on tables and he sells them to the tourist religion. You see, Ephesus is a major hub for the summertime travels. It's where those of Asia and indeed all the Roman Empire will go to worship at the sacred stone that fell from Zeus in heaven. We call it a meteor, right? And they go into that temple, and there they worship. But what do all tourists want at the end of their travel? They want a souvenir. They want a little memento. And it's in this business that Demetrius thrives. He makes those little religious trinkets that people can take home after their religious travels. He recognizes Paul is a serious threat to this business. He notes in verse 25 that our prosperity is due to this trade. He notes in verse 27 that this trade is in danger of falling into disrepute. Inasmuch as Demetrius is worried about his bottom line, worried about his ever thinning wallet, he is also worried about his religion. In verse 27, he notes that it is not only a financial concern to have Paul in the city of Ephesus, it is a religious concern. The temple of the great goddess may be despised. The goddess herself may have her magnificence destroyed. Demetrius stirs up the hearts of his fellow workers with a reminder that their livelihood is at stake and their religion is in the dock. But Demetrius, in so pronouncing these words, rightly acknowledges the intentions of Christ. You see, my friends, the gospel is something very perilous to the finances and religions of this world. Do you not yearn and pray for billion-dollar industries based on abuse and slavery and sin to die? Were you listening to Thomas? He prayed this morning. He prayed for Christ to destroy a billion dollar industry whose only purpose is to abuse and enslave. We are, as gospel believing saints, a serious threat to the finances of this world. Oh, may it be so. May the day come when billion dollar pornographers have no customers and are in danger of disappearing. May we pray and labor long and hard for the end of slavery in our world, for the end of an entire industry rooted and based in abuse and sin. My friends, may the superstitions of this world no longer prove a financially stable foundation for the economies of our society. Oh, it would be sweet to see the gospel tear down the economic foundations of sin. And also tear down the religions behind them. That the gods and goddesses that we have manufactured. That we bow down in worship. How we love our comfort and our convenience. How we love the welfare and peace of our flesh and our bodies. How we yearn for an easy life. And we worship at that goddess. How we as Americans have built a billion dollar empire in making life comfortable. Every single book I've read on the history of such things in the 20th century comes to the great conclusion. The internal angst of the 21st century American is a direct result of our indulgence in our economy and comfort. The pagans say this. My friends, we have bowed too long to the goddesses of this world and the gospel is here to destroy them. There is a material threat in trusting Christ to care for us. We are the worst economic and religious participants for those things that are rooted in false gods and goddesses. We indeed have something else to offer and Demetrius stunningly perhaps unwittingly, points to it in verse 26. Do you see the great threat that Paul is to this economic empire of Ephesus? To this long-lasting religion of Diana? Verse 26, this Paul has persuaded many. What is the great weapon of the Apostle Paul? That he should tear down the glory of Diana. What is the great nuclear warhead that is shattering the very foundations of their society and civilization? Paul persuades them. Paul shows them the love of God in Christ. Paul shares with them the peace of God found in Christ. My friends, this is our weapon. This is what it is that our plan should seek to deploy. Why do we prayerfully and patiently wait upon Christ to fulfill His plan? Because it is by persuasion that we win this world. We tear down the economic empires of this age by setting before them the sweetness of our Savior. We crack the foundations of civilization by slamming against them the gentleness of Christ, the humility of His heart. We are a persuasive and compelling people who find the love of Christ to be the all-powerful weapon in this world. This is why we must cultivate patience, prayer in our work, in our planning. Because it is this patient persuasion that works on the world. We don't need the weapons of this world to wage war against it. We don't need to hold the halls of power. We don't need the citadels of this society. We don't, my friends. We have Christ. He's in charge. I fear that our evangelical preoccupation with politics has blinded us to this glorious truth. We don't need to win the government when we've got God. He shall do the work. God is the one who will govern this world. Jesus is in charge. Let us be content to persuade. Let us be content to appeal with the love of God in Christ and to preach the truth of His power. My friends, the second reason we need such patience, such prayerful planning is because we are indeed powerless to do otherwise. There isn't anything else for us to do. This is evidence to us in verses 28 through 34. Demetrius having laid out, our city is in grave danger. Our economics are about to be in ruin. Our religion is about to be in devastation and destruction. The persuasion of this Paul is a powerful thing. Let's do something about it. In verse 28, they do something about it. They become full of wrath. Notice also in verse 29, they also become full of confusion. These are related concepts. A society full of anger is also a society full of confusion. If you doubt me, go check your Facebook feed. Rage and confusion. My friends, they go hand in hand. The mob spills into the street. They race to the theater along the way. They find Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who have traveled to Ephesus with Paul, his friends. They recognize him as fellow workers and as partners in his plan. They seize him and drag them into the theater. Notice first, my friends, the powerlessness of Gaius and Aristarchus. They cannot resist the physical violence of the mob. They cannot turn back the gripping hands of these furious people who drag them into the midst of their madness and their mob. My friends, there is a powerlessness at the rage of our enemies. We are not superheroes from Hollywood. We cannot take on the madness of mobs And cast them down with the flexing of our muscles. We have not funny outfits. Nor superpowers. We are but people. Easily wounded and easily broken. We must acknowledge and recognize our powerlessness in the face of the madness of mobs. In like manner, notice Paul's powerlessness. In verse 30, he longs to rush in to be with his friends. He longs to address the crowd and to set the story straight. He sees an opportunity in this riot. He is not afraid. No, he's ready to rush in. But his friends, his disciples, intervene. They've seen the value of his preaching. They've known the treasure of his friendship. And they will not let him throw away his life so rashly. They hold him back. They find some interesting allies in verse 31, the officials of Asia. In the ESV, it says the Asiarchs, literally just those who rule Asia. This is a Roman position. It's a ceremonial position. It means they get to lead parades. It means they get to you know, offer toast to the emperor at the, at the festival. These are people who apparently had made friendship with Paul. And they use their wealth and influence and ceremonial position to plead with him. Protect your life. Do not do anything rash. Paul, don't be in a great hurry. Stay home. Paul, don't rush in. You don't have to solve this problem. You don't have to be the Savior who comes rushing to the help of your friends. Paul is powerless. Gaius and Aristarchus are powerless. And thirdly, Alexander is powerless. He's put forward by the Jews in verse 33. It is unlikely that he is a Christian. It is probably that the Jews fear being caught up in the persecution of Christians, and they put forward Alexander in order to get some distance from Paul. Yeah, we know he was in our synagogue once, but we got rid of him. We're not with this guy. Alexander takes the stage. The theater is there and he raises his hand high and he he prepares to launch into his defense of the synagogue, his defense of the Jews against Paul and the Christians. But in verse 34, they discover he's a Jew and they want none of such nuance. Have you noticed that on Facebook too? In a mob of anger and confusion, nuance and subtlety are not welcome. Splitting hairs is not welcome. Welcome. No, once a Jew, always a Jew. We put you together. We don't care about the difference between Judaism and Christianity. No, what they care about in verse 34 and in verse 28 is that great is Diana of the Ephesians. This is the burning within their soul. This is the fire within their hearts. For two hours, they managed to say again and again, great is Diana of the Ephesians. I can't even talk for two consecutive hours. And they can shout the exact same phrase for two hours? This is not a debate held in reason. This is not an argument rooted in logic. This is the madness of humanity. This is the mob come together to riot, to assert by their volume and their intensity, by their physical presence, that my religion may not be touched, nor my wallet. Indeed, keep quiet, Christian. There's no place for you here in our city. It is the drowning out of Paul's soft persuasion. It is the attempt by tsunami to overwhelm the peaceable preaching of the gospel and to work into a frenzy the madness of this world. My friends, we must be ready to be patient. We must have a prayer based plan because it is persuasion that turns this world into the new heavens and the new earth, and because, my friends, they will not go quietly. We are a powerless people. It is out of the abundance of our weakness that we will find our God's strength. One of the things that continues to break my heart as a pastor is how Jesus refuses to use my gifts and strengths. He prefers my weaknesses and sins. I wish he would elevate me and exalt me in all my wonder. He does not. He prefers that I minister to you in weakness, in fear and in trembling, as Paul himself put it to the Corinthians. He prefers a pastor who knows his powerlessness. This, my friends, is why we must be a people in prayer. And a people of patience. We are powerless to make this wicked world heaven on earth. But our Christ is not. Indeed our Christ is in charge. When we know our powerlessness. We shall know his great power. When we know our need. We will know his great provision. When we embrace weakness. We will see in him tremendous strength. And that is exhibited in the third and final part of our story. The city clerk stands up and quiets the crowd. When you think about the great drama in this story, when you think about the great intensity of a mob and a riot, and you think, who is it that can calm the mob? Who is it that can tame the madness of a wicked heart, multiplied a thousand times over? I know the city clerk. That's the guy with ink stain under his fingernails. The one who sits in stacks of paper behind the desk. Well, that's not quite who this is. He's actually a little closer to the mayor. His his office is actually a little more similar to the city mayor. He gets up. And he addresses the crowd and somehow, by means I do not know, he manages to get their attention and maybe their throats after two hours just gave out and they couldn't shout anymore. I don't know. But he manages to obtain a bit of silence and he makes three arguments as to why this riot should come to an end. First, he says, men of Ephesus, your religion is irrefutable. Everybody knows that the Temple of Diana is here. It's not going anywhere. They're still going to come. The tourists will come. Don't worry. It's like being in Orlando and being afraid that Disney World will run out of business. Right? It's this source and significance that cannot dry up in his mind. He says, we know we are the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana. And he throws in there, we have the sacred stone. Nobody else has a hunk of meteorite that fell down from Zeus. We have the sacred stone. Don't worry, your religion is secure. He makes peace by doubling down on the false religion. Secondly, he argues that there are Roman answers. There is a good government in place, verse 38. If Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a complaint, there's a way to handle it, and this isn't it. There are courts that are open. Lawyer up and make your lawsuit. Go ahead, go to court. That's what they're there for. If you don't like that, go to the proconsul. That's the governor, the magistrate in the area. Appeal to him to act to execute the laws. In like manner, verse 39, if you want to change the laws or make new laws, go to the lawful assembly. Appeal to the legislature. The town mayor recognizes that the religion is safe. He further recognizes that Roman government is secure. That it is something that can be trusted and depended upon. It can be gone to for order. But thirdly, he concludes in verse 40, we are in danger. My friends, Rome doesn't like riots. In fact, the cities that have fallen into riots have ended up with lots of bloodshed when the Roman armies arrive. He says, no, don't you understand? This kind of madness will bring the heel of Rome down upon us with a fury. We will lose our Roman citizenship. The town, the city clerk will likely lose his life. He's worried about that as well. He appeals in this threefold manner to their religion, to their government, and to their self preservation. He doubles down, doubles down, down. I don't know how to say that. He doubles down on all their priorities, on all their ambitions. He tells them, like a good politician, exactly what they want to hear. And what happens in verse 41? They go home. They go home. Isn't this extraordinary? Isn't this like the worst way in the world to end a cool story about Jesus' power? Don't you sit there with me and sort of scratch your head and say, Luke, why did you record this? Paul doesn't do anything awesome, he's powerless. Paul's helpers didn't do anything cool. They're not even in town. What are you celebrating here? The religion of Diana? The government of Rome? The self-preservation at the heart of a human? He is celebrating, my friends, I submit to you, the supremacy of Christ over every problem in life. That Jesus should employ such a wretched figure as this for the protection of His people That Jesus should find in every sorrow an opportunity for salvation and the protection of His church. To find that Jesus is sufficient for every problem. And that we are not all wise in all knowing. To find that we do not always know His purposes. But we should rather trust Him. There has been now for over a year great agitation in the church Very understandably, this is not the world we wish to be working in or worshiping in. This is not the order and the sense in which we must or wish to proceed. And yet, my friends, let us be convinced Christ knows his business. And he has not made a mistake. That he knows what is best for us. If we believe He is in charge, then let us with prayer and patience cultivate our plans. Let us with persuasion make war on this world. Let us acknowledge our powerlessness. And let us see, in every trouble and in every trial, the extraordinary power of Christ. Because you see, my friends, Do you know what you cannot find in Ephesus today? A sacred stone or a temple to Diana. You know what you can find in Ephesus today? A church in which Jesus Christ is worshipped. My friends, we know how this story ends. We know that Jesus wins and triumphs. We know that Rome is long gone. And the church Sits here today. Dear friends. We have a Jesus who is in charge. We have a Jesus who is in control. We can put aside the worry. We can put aside the hurry. We can embrace peace. We can live in a persuasive and compelling manner. Praying and partnering with others patiently. Acknowledging our powerlessness and seeing in all of providence, in all of history, the extraordinary power of Jesus Christ, this theology is expressed most beautifully in verse, in chapter twenty, verse one. Paul called the disciples to himself after the uproar had ceased, embraced them, and departed. Paul has grasped the most essential feature of setting aside your hurry and your worry, he acknowledges he is not essential. He acknowledges that he can come and he can go. My friends, I submit to you that most of our busyness is based in our belief in our indispensability. We don't trust Jesus to do a better job than we do. And Paul stands as a contrast to us. I hope that in going through this sermon as I have, you have seen clearly that the one in this room that I am convinced needs this sermon most, it's me. There is such a desperate need in my heart, and I suspect in yours, to believe that Jesus is in charge and that we are not. And that out of our powerlessness... But out of our prayerfulness, we will patiently see Jesus sovereignly unfold a providential plan that was well worth the wait. Jesus is in charge. So let's live without the hurry and the worry. Let's live in peace. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. Thank You for this hope of Christ enthroned in the heavens. We thank You for this reminder that all things are in His hand. And that indeed, whatever He ordains is right. And His holy will abides. We give You thanks, O God, that all that He does, He does according to His perfect, sinless will. And we pray, Father, that we would see the goodness of Your grace Exposed in our lives. We pray, O oh God, that we would rest this day, putting away those thoughts and distractions and cares that weigh us down, and putting on instead thoughts and feelings for Christ, embracing the treasures of His presence and of His Word and of His people. We thank you that we have a day in which we may dedicate ourselves to this refreshing grace of our fellowship, and of yours. And Father, we pray that it would strengthen and encourage us for the week ahead. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.